Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series today, Christmas in the First Testament, with a message entitled Christmas in Leviticus. So turning your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 16 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I have through much of my ministry made a Bible reading list for people so that, you know, in the course of a full year, they're able to read through their entire Bible. But I'm keenly aware that a great many people at the beginning of the year make a resolution that this is the year, they say, that I'm going to read my whole Bible through. You know, so they begin at the beginning. They read through Genesis. That's exciting, and it captures their attention. Then they read Exodus, and it seems the action ramps up. But halfway through Exodus, or to be more precise, somewhere around chapter 24 and on, the reading gets tough. You know, it's very specific, detailed instruction of how to build a tabernacle along with its furnishings. And so the Bible reader begins to read about the exact dimensions of the tabernacle. And depending on your translation, the measurement might be given in cubits. Well, what's a cubit? Now, why should you care about how many clasps and loops are in each tent curtain? You know, it's the details, the the details that are difficult. And by the way, just to help you through that, when you read that, get yourself a good descriptive picture of what's being described. It's going to make your Bible reading so much easier. But why the detail? Well, hang on. I'll explain that in a bit. Ah, but then comes Leviticus. And now a great many determined readers lose their determination. You see, the book starts by describing five major offerings that are prescribed as a part of the ritual of worship and how the priest is to handle each offering properly. I mean, how do you handle the lobe of the liver of the sacrificed animal? There's more. How about the entrails and the other parts? I mean, which part do you burn and which part gets thrown out? Which part gets eaten and so on? And that's just the beginning. The details of the Day of Atonement and then, you know, the call for ritual cleansing as well as holiness, as well as the holy feast that Israel must participate in and not neglect. You know, I've known more than one person who was determined to read their Bible through, and then they gave up somewhere in the wilderness of Leviticus. (laughs) Leviticus. You know, to some it seems so dry and so detailed in minutiae. Well, given all the technicality of the book, you might wonder how in the world would we find themes of Christmas in, of all places, the book of Leviticus? So let me provide some context. Baby Jesus was born, and then suddenly, into the animal cave where Mary and Joseph were staying, comes a group of shepherds, and they're breathless. You know, they've just been out in the fields at night, and suddenly the glory of the Lord appeared to them, angels filling the night sky, saying, I bring you good news. Today in the city of David, a Savior has been born. He's the Messiah and he's the Lord. And so at the direction of the angels, we come to this very place. We want to see the Savior, they say. And before that night ends, the shepherds are leaving. And as they leave, you can still hear them proclaiming and singing about the glory of God and the greatest moment they've ever witnessed in their lives. And as they leave, Mary's overwhelmed. Luke says she's pondering these things in her heart. Luke, who recounts this story, tells about what happens next. And here I'm reading Luke 2, 21 to 24. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, 
they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, what we've just read in Luke tells us something about Mary and Joseph. You know, it might be that a great many modern-day Christians are not familiar with the book of Leviticus, but Mary and Joseph are quite familiar with the book of Leviticus. And here's what they read in the book, Leviticus 12, 1-4. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. Well, what happens at the end of her days of purifying? Well, Leviticus 12 verse 6 says, And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. (laughs) But Mary and Joseph didn't do that last part. They didn't offer up a lamb. That part of the requirement is missing. Well, did they blow it? Well, well, no, they didn't. Because verse 8 says, And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons. And so you see, Mary and Joseph were quite poor. But they knew Leviticus well enough to know that God had made provisions for people just like them. And what's of interest to us is that they followed the law in Leviticus right down to the last detail. They were as meticulous in carrying out that law as Leviticus was in describing that law. And so, you see, Leviticus played a role in the birth of the Messiah. But the book does more than that. Leviticus really lays the groundwork for the work the Messiah would do. Let me cheat for just a moment, and instead of starting at the beginning of the book of Leviticus— Let me take you to the end of the book of Exodus. Israel has just come out of Egypt. The years of slavery are now behind them. They journey to Mount Sinai, to the mountain of God, where they will hear the Ten Commandments and other laws as well that God expects his people to live by. And that, as I've said, is where suddenly, well, the book of Exodus gets hard to read. But we have to remember the bigger picture. What's going on here? See, instead of taking his people to the promised land or the land that God had sworn to Abraham and his descendants, instead of that, God took them into the wilderness, into the desert, and he kept them there for two years. See, not only did God want them to learn his laws, he was interested in something else. God wanted them to know him. He wanted them to know what kind of a God he was and what kind of a relationship they were to have with him. And that's why the last part of Exodus is concerned with building a place of worship. And that was called the tabernacle. And just so you understand, this idea of having a tabernacle, well, it's a part of the Christmas story. See, in describing the birth of Jesus, John, that is in John 1 verse 14, he writes, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, that language was borrowed from the tabernacle. See, when John says the word dwelt among us, he literally says he pitched his tent among us. 
That is, John says, if you want to understand Jesus, well, you're going to have to understand the tent or the tabernacle. Jesus is the tabernacle come to us in human flesh. And so any follower of Jesus should study the account of the tabernacle with some interest. For it is in this place where God chose to make his presence felt among his ancient people. So how did God do that? Well, the tabernacle was a portable temple. Indeed, the dimensions of the design of the thing were not designed by Moses or some of the leading builders in the community. Rather, it was designed in accordance with the direction and the pattern that God had showed Moses while Moses was up on Mount Sinai. And the actual tent itself was surrounded by a courtyard. Uh, The courtyard was 150 feet long and 75 feet wide. It was a, a surrounding with a wall of tent material. And inside the courtyard was the tent, or it was sometimes also called the tent of meeting. And that's where the right person could go to meet with God. But outside of the tent, but inside the courtyard, there were two large pieces of furniture. One was a large altar made of wood overlaid with bronze to be used to offer up animals for burnt offerings. And there was a bronze basin on a stand filled with water to be used to ceremonially wash in order to be ritually clean. But of course, inside the courtyard stood the tent of meeting, which was a fully covered tent containing two rooms. The first room was called the holy place. It was 30 feet long and 15 feet wide, and it contained three pieces of furniture. The first was a table on which 12 loaves of fresh bread were placed every day. Later on in Leviticus 24, we read a very detailed account of how the bread was to be placed on the table. So why is that there? Well, it symbolized that God is the source of life, that we live by the bread that he feeds us. And you're going to remember that later Jesus himself would say, I am the bread of life. And he was using the image found in both Exodus and also in Leviticus as well. Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada, wishing you all the joy, hope, and wonder of the season. While the trees go up, lights are hung, and the house smells of delicious baked goods, many of us find ourselves celebrating apart from our families this year. This Christmas season may look and even feel different, but nothing can diminish the message of hope that Christ brings. The coming of Jesus was and is the arrival of ultimate hope in a world that has lost its hope. It's why we can genuinely say Merry Christmas. We're so thankful for our Back to the Bible Canada family. Your partnership makes this ministry possible. To support these Bible teaching efforts this month, please call us at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca. The second piece of furniture in the holy place was the golden lampstand. It gave light to the tabernacle, but it was also symbolic of the fact that all light comes from God. Again, we remember what John told us, that Jesus is the light of God coming into this darkened world. And the third piece of furniture in the holy place was the altar of incense on which a sacred recipe burned incense, the incense that was forbidden from being used anywhere else. So let's go to Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 to 2. There we read, 
Now Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. You see, God had commanded that the incense should only be used with a certain formula and in a certain place. You could never make up your own rules surrounding worship. God would be treated as holy, not as a common being. Now, remember, I said that the tent of meeting was made up of two rooms. The first was called the holy place, and the second was the the holy of holies, which only had one piece of furniture, and that was the Ark of the Covenant. It and its contents were kept hidden from view at all times. It was not to be touched by human hands, and when it was transported, it was to be covered and carried with poles in loops on the side of the ark. Two-winged angels, or cherubim, with wings spread out toward each other, were on the top of the ark. And in the center, at the place where the wings stretched out, was what was called the mercy seat. That was the place where you would seek mercy from God. And that, by the way, is why in several places in the Old Testament, God is referred to as enthroned above the cherubim. It was in this place on the ark that the God of the universe would come and visit with his people. No one was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies and gaze on the Ark of the Covenant. Indeed, there was a thick curtain that hung as a separation between the holy place and the Holy of Holies. And that was to convey the idea that God was holy, but his people were not. How then can that which is unclean or unholy come into the presence of a holy God? And the answer is no one can. And if you think that you can, you don't understand God, nor do you understand yourself. Do it and you'll die in an instant. And so what was to be done? The universe has a holy God, but we are a broken and sinful and a ruined people. And it is right here that the book of Leviticus comes in. God, the Holy One, has provided for a way in which his people, could enter into his presence and not die. And as the book begins, immediately we are met with a series of five offerings to be presented before the Lord. Well, now already we know where this is to be done. It was to be done in the courtyard of the tabernacle. And you'll remember there was a very large and imposing bronze altar there. And it had a grate on the top in which offerings could be presented before God. And the first offering that we find in Leviticus is called the burnt offering. And there, as we're going to see, as with other offerings, the actual practice of it, that is, how it is to be offered, well, it's given to us in chapter 1. And then later, in chapter 6, verses 8 to 13, it explains exactly how the priest must handle that offering. It must be offered in exactly the way in which the Lord prescribes it. But what's the purpose of the offering? Well, Leviticus 1 verse 4 says that the one who offers one of the livestock as a burnt offering, it says, if he offers it in the prescribed manner, it says, it shall be accepted to make atonement for him. See, the idea is that the judgment of God was removed from the worshiper because of the offering that is brought. And indeed, in verse 9, it says that the offering is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That is, God is satisfied with the worshiper. Well, there are five such offerings. There's the burnt offering, the grain offering, the fellowship offering, the sin offering, and then the guilt offering. And in each case, the worshiper recognizes that an offering must be made to God on account of the uncleanness of the worshiper. 
Indeed, as one works one's way through Leviticus, it becomes quite clear that the major concern in the book is that which is mentioned in Leviticus 10 verse 10. It says, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. Indeed, as we go through Leviticus, we begin to see that that nothing that is unclean or unholy is to come in contact with that which is clean or holy. Yeah, it's true that Leviticus does make a distinction between ritual cleanness and moral cleanness, but these things do bring to mind that God is holy and we're not. Now, at the very center of the book of Leviticus, chapter 16, you know, it's perhaps one of the most fascinating chapters in the entire Bible. See, this is the chapter about the Day of Atonement, or what our Jewish friends now call Yom Kippur. You know, this was the only day in the whole year that anyone was permitted to enter into the Holy of Holies, and it was permitted by only one man, and that man being the high priest. Let me describe the celebration. The very first thing that was to take place was that Aaron, who was the high priest, was to take off his normally priestly garments, and then he was to wash his entire body, and then he was to put on special garments used for that day alone. Next, he was to secure all the sacrificial animals that would be required. Then he would slaughter a bull, which was to be slaughtered for his own sins. And that's a fascinating thing. See, although the priests were to appear before God on behalf of the people, it turns out that the priests were also sinful and unclean. And that's the reason, before things got going, that Aaron was to present an offering for his own sin. And then he was to take some of the blood of the bull offering into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant seven times. But before he was to enter, he had to light the incense, and so he was to create a cloud of smoke. It was to veil the glory of God as he entered into that place. And then after he had made an offering for his own uncleanness, Aaron would then come out and he would take two goats and he would cast lots to determine which one was to be slaughtered and which one was to be sent away. And I'm going to come back to that. Then Aaron would take the goat to be slaughtered. He'd offer it up to the Lord for the sins of the people. Then he'd enter the Holy of Holies again, and he'd sprinkle the blood of the mercy seat for the sins of God's people. And in some fashion, Aaron not only offers up cleansing for the people, but also a cleansing for the entire tabernacle, because even it can be unholy. And then on the outside of the outside of the tent, Aaron would come to the second goat, the one that was left alive. So let's read what happens next in Leviticus 16, 21 to 22. It says, And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgression, all their sins. He shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. It's a beautiful picture. The sin goat. The one that represents all the sins of the people is taken from the camp. It's driven into the wilderness. You know, on a practical note, I'm sure that, you know, some wild animal would probably kill it and eat it. That's not the point. The point is the goat would never come back. Leviticus 16 verse 30 says, For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. The sins don't come back. Now, of course, it's a beautiful and a powerful picture, and it's a symbol. But in truth, none of the temple ritual could save you from any sins that were done with a high hand in open rebellion against God. 
Ah, but that's where Jesus is superior to Aaron the high priest. Aaron was aware of his own sins. He needed to be cleansed before he could enter into God's presence. But Jesus was never unclean. And consider how it is that Leviticus points us to Jesus. You know, first of all, Leviticus reminds us that we need so much more than to simply hear God's laws. You know, we need to have God living among us. And so when Jesus was born, God was tabernacling among us. His glory was right there, yet placed behind a veil. But this veil was the veil of human flesh. Second, please also note that in Leviticus, the unclean was never permitted to touch what was clean. No contamination was permitted. But Jesus touched the leper and the demon-possessed and the blind and the lame and the unclean tax collector Matthew, who had profaned the people of God and oppressed his own people through Roman taxation. I mean, the examples of uncleanness go on and on. And in this case, everywhere the living tabernacle, Jesus went. The unclean became clean. It was not as if Jesus was defiled. It was the opposite. Well, there's so much more. The Day of Atonement reminds us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And for that reason, Jesus is the Day of Atonement, for he has entered into the presence of the Father on our behalf, not with the blood of goats and bulls, but by his own blood shed on the cross. And now our sins are removed and they never come back. And finally, when Jesus died on the cross, Matthew tells us the veil in the temple was torn in two. And so now for the first time, an avenue has been opened to approach the living God. That's how Christmas is told through Leviticus. Thanks so much, John. John, let me ask you this question. Would it be safe to say, and could you explain us maybe why Leviticus might be one of the most overlooked books of the Bible? <laughs> well, it's overlooked because it's difficult to read, and, and that's just a fact. Um, I think just simply by a light reading of Leviticus, you'll probably get very little out of it. Uh, however, I think repeated reading and then beginning to study it, I mean, suddenly it begins to gain a meaning, uh, which, you know, as some have called it, the most New Testament of the First Testament books. It, it completely helps us to understand our salvation, but also the need for holiness. I mean, there's so much there. It's so rich. I mean, I would encourage the readers to mine its content and, and thereby discover something about how rich the Christmas story actually is. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Christmas in the First Testament, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible Teaching you can trust. Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. The year is coming to a close and I couldn't be more grateful for the encouragement, prayers, and support we received from so many gracious ministry friends across the country. All of Back to the Bible Canada ministries, including Laugh Again and our young adult ministry in doubt, rely on the generosity of people like you. We teach the Bible with a purpose, that those who hear might receive and believe in our Lord Jesus. That's the intention of every program, every word. And your gifts make all that we do possible. Please consider supporting the ongoing ministries of Back to the Bible Canada as we strive to reach our December year-end goal of $376,000.
Call 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca.